I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Hello and welcome to 10 American Presidents. Now, just before we start the show, I need to remind you that 10 American Presidents is part of the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Podcast Network is a network of independent, like-minded, intelligent podcasts from all over the world. This month, we are promoting Chris Stewart's most brilliant, The History of China. So to listen to it, why don't you go over to agorapodcastnetwork.com and download the show. Otherwise, you can go to Acast or iTunes or a podcatcher of your choice. I think we're all accustomed to presidential speeches, especially in the midst of a presidential campaign. But have you ever really given any thought to presidential speech? The actual words and voices and accents of the various presidents? Some speak with very neutral accents, and others have very distinctive regional accents. But presidents don't just reflect the speech of their constituents, they also help to shape that speech. You might be surprised how much the words of the presidents have shaped the English language itself, especially American English. 
In many ways, the history of presidential speech is really the history of American English. So I want to take you through that history to see the evolution of American English through the words of the various presidents. Just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Hello, I'm Kevin Stroud from the History of English podcast. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Let's begin our journey at the beginning, before there were any presidents, and before there was even a United States of America. I want to take you back to the 1600s, when the British Empire extended its reach to the shores of North America. It was in that first century of migration that a unique American dialect started to emerge. As migrants poured in from Britain, they brought their accents with them. And I say accents because there wasn't one British accent. There were lots of them. Much like today, there was an incredible diversity of accents and dialects in Britain. From north to south and east to west and even from town to town, people spoke different versions of English. And those different dialects traveled across the Atlantic in the 1600s. Once they were in the New World, those dialects quickly blended together. Many common features shared by those various dialects were retained, and many features that were unique to particular dialects were lost. As a result, there was a leveling off of those dialects. And within a couple of generations, a new form of English had emerged in the New World. This was a more or less uniform style of speech that was the foundation of later American English. Of course, there were no tape recordings from this period, so no one knows exactly what this new early American dialect sounded like. But there are clues from the surviving text, and also from people who commented on the English spoken in the New World. Many letters survive from people who traveled from Britain to the colonies during this early period of settlement. And in a few instances, the travelers commented on the language of the colonists. And the authors of those letters expressed surprise at how uniform the English language was in the colonies. As I noted, dialects varied greatly within Britain. And apparently travelers from Britain expected to find the same thing when they arrived in the colonies. But that wasn't really the case at all. While visitors from Britain may have been surprised by the uniformity of colonial English, that doesn't mean that it was completely uniform and without variation. In fact, there were some slight regional differences from the very beginning. And much like today, those regional differences were more apparent to the natives who grew up there than it was to the visitors who arrived from elsewhere. Letters from colonists who traveled throughout the colonies indicate some subtle differences in speech from region to region. For example, residents of the Virginia colony in the South tended to use elongated vowels, and they spoke with a little more of a drawl. And people in the Massachusetts colony in the North tended to drop their R's after vowels. These differences became more exaggerated over time, and they still exist today. We still think of Southern accents as being slower and having that drawl. And the stereotypical Boston accent still drops those R's. Harvard instead of Harvard, and Ka instead of Car. So where did those regional differences come from? Well, in some respects, they came from Britain. While people came to the colonies from throughout Britain, much of the early settlement was actually more regional. A trip across the Atlantic was a major undertaking. It took several weeks, 
and many people died on the voyage due to sickness. When the settlers arrived in the New World, they had to start from scratch, so it was important to settle in an area where you might know someone, where you might have family, or where you might know someone who had made the trip before you. This meant that people from certain parts of Britain tended to settle in the same parts of the New World. And that allowed some features of regional dialects in Britain to be transplanted to the colonies. So, for example, much of the early settlement of the Virginia colony came from the southwest of England. And in the southwest of England, there was a tendency to stretch out the vowels. And it's believed that this settlement pattern contributed to that same general tendency among early English speakers in the Virginia colony. Along the same lines, much of the early settlement around Boston came from the eastern and southeastern parts of England. And in those parts of England, there was a tendency to drop the R sound after vowels. Again, that linguistic tendency was transplanted to the early Massachusetts colony, and it's still a feature of many accents from that region. After the early settlement in Virginia and Plymouth, there was a significant settlement in the Mid-Atlantic. Much of that settlement came from the Midlands and north of England. And by the early and mid-1700s, people were arriving from Scotland, and especially from Northern Ireland. These later settlers were known as the Scots-Irish. And since much of the farmland east of the Appalachians was claimed by that point, the Scots-Irish settlers tended to move further west into the Appalachian region. All of these settlement patterns contributed to slight variations of speech in the different regions. We're now in the mid-1700s, and most colonists still looked to Britain for their cultural clues, and that included the English language. Around this time, there was an increasing desire to standardize the English language spoken in England. Standard rules of grammar were being adopted by scholars, and English dictionaries were being produced. The most influential dictionary was the one produced by Samuel Johnson in London in 1755. His dictionary established not only the proper spelling of words, but it also established a standard English vocabulary. If Johnson included the word, it was considered acceptable English. But Johnson was very particular and very opinionated, and he hated Americanisms. Unique words and phrases coined in the American colonies were arriving on the English shores, and like many British scholars, he hated them. He thought they were improper and even barbarian. One prominent American who was living in England during this period was Benjamin Franklin and we get a sense of the deference to British English in his writings. Franklin was already a well-known figure, both for his inventions and his writings. And he actually coined several English words. Franklin gave us the word mileage. And he also gave us the word battery as a source of electricity. He also coined the term harmonica for an early form of the musical instrument which he invented. Franklin spent many years in England between the 1750s and the 1770s. And being a product of the colonies, Franklin also tended to use certain Americanisms, even in his writings. And those were met with disapproval by many scholars in Britain. The Scottish philosopher and historian David Hume wrote to Franklin criticizing him for the use of words like pejorate, colonize, and unshakable in his various publications. These were all Americanisms, and they weren't commonly used in Britain. Franklin wrote back in 1760, and he essentially apologized for using those words. 
He said that he had stopped using them since they weren't used in Britain. So we see a general deference to standard British English. Franklin also noted that certain words used in England were not as commonly used in the colonies. For example, he drew a distinction between the word inaccessible, which was commonly used in England, and the word uncommutable, which was widely used in the colonies. In his letter to Hume, Franklin wrote, The word inaccessible, though long in use among us, is not yet, I dare say, so universally understood by our people as the word uncommutable would immediately be, which we are not allowed to write. End quote. So Franklin acknowledges that the colonists had their own unique vocabulary, and they sometimes used words which they knew were not standard because they used them in their speech but not in their formal writings. From Franklin's letter, we get an almost apologetic tone. But that was about to change. Over the next decade or so, the relationship between Britain and its colonies started to deteriorate. And by the mid-1700s, the colonies were ready to declare their independence. It was decided that that independence should be formally asserted in a written document, a Declaration of Independence. The person assigned with the task of drafting that declaration was a Virginia farmer and statesman named Thomas Jefferson. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one person to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to one another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind... Jefferson's declaration is considered one of the founding documents of the American Republic. And in drafting the document, Jefferson avoided Americanisms. He did use and popularize the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, but John Locke had actually coined the phrase before Jefferson used it. At the time Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, there was still a great deal of variation in the English language. Jefferson's draft reflects that variation. Sometimes he used the modern word has. In other places, he used the older form hath. At a time when spellings were still variable, he spelled payment P-A-I-M-E-N-T. Sometimes he spelled honor with a U, and sometimes he didn't. He spelled independent with an A-N-T at the end instead of an E-N-T. And the Continental Congress actually debated what the correct form should be in the final draft. They also debated whether the reference to rights should be unalienable or inalienable. Again, a lot of these spellings and word choices were still variable. So Jefferson's draft reflects the general state of the language at the time. Beyond the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson was a very prolific writer. In his writings, he coined a lot of terms, which we still use today. He coined the words indecipherable and electioneering. He was also the first to use the term public relations. And if you place a bid in an auction, you can thank Thomas Jefferson, because he was the first known person to use the word bid as a noun. Before Jefferson, it was just a verb. He also used ambition as a verb, as in he ambitioned to be a great man. But there was one particular word that drew a great deal of criticism from the guardians of English across the sea, and that was the word belittle. Jefferson coined the word, and he soon heard about it from his critics in Britain. 
A French naturalist named the Count de Buffon had written some books about natural history, and in those books he dismissed the natural wonders of North America. Now Jefferson took exception to the comments, and in 1785 he made reference to the comments in his own book about his home state of Virginia. The book was titled Notes on the State of Virginia, and in the book Jefferson wrote that, quote, the Count de Buffon believes that nature belittles her productions on this side of the Atlantic, end quote. Well, a couple of years later, Jefferson's book was published in London. This was only about four years after the conclusion of the war with Britain, so feelings were still bitter on both sides of the Atlantic. Jefferson had written the Declaration of Independence, and he was considered one of the major voices of the Revolution. So he was a target for any non-standard use of the language. And writers in Britain attacked Jefferson for coining a new word, a new Americanism, if you will, and that was the word belittle. In its review of Jefferson's book, the authors of the European Magazine and London Review wrote the following. Belittle? What an expression. It may be an elegant one in Virginia, and even perfectly intelligible, but for our part, all we can do is guess at its meaning. For shame, Mr. Jefferson. End quote. But back in the newly independent America, John Adams came to Jefferson's defense. He wrote, I approve Jefferson's word belittle and hope it will be incorporated into American dictionaries. End quote. Around the time that this whole debate over the word belittle was taking place, the American founders were dealing with a variety of problems associated with their new government. The new government was operating under a document called the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, and it wasn't working very well. The document created a very weak federal government and gave most of the powers to the individual states. It was very inefficient. There was no president, no judiciary, and a very weak Congress. Prominent leaders around the country decided that some changes needed to be made. So, a constitutional convention was convened in Philadelphia. The convention set about creating a new governing document to replace the Articles of Confederation. Of course, that document became the U.S. Constitution. Much like the earlier Declaration of Independence, the Constitution adhered closely to standard English, and it generally avoided Americanisms. Now, I should note that the Constitution repeatedly spelled the word choose as C-H-U-S-E, but that was a common spelling at the time, going all the way back to Middle English. Since the new constitution created the office of president, it was necessary to select someone to be that first president. And in 1789, the Electoral College unanimously elected George Washington as the first president of the United States. The writings of George Washington reveal many Americanisms, and even many new words which were documented for the first time. His writings contain the first known use of the word indoors to mean inside. He was also the first known person to use the words ravine, rehire, and cornrow. He also coined the term hatchet man. Today the word means a thug or gangster, but Washington used it to mean literally a man with a hatchet. It was a term for a pioneer who used a hatchet to clear trees and brush. Washington also sometimes used certain nouns as verbs. He was the first known person to use the word average as a verb. So in making a calculation, you might use the word in its traditional sense, 
to determine the average of several numbers. Well, Washington was the first person to speak of averaging certain numbers. He specifically used it in the context of fat sheep averaging a certain weight. At the end of his second term in office, George Washington decided to step down, thereby establishing a tradition that the president would serve no more than two terms, a tradition later codified in the Constitution itself. He was succeeded by John Adams. As I noted earlier, John Adams had defended Thomas Jefferson for his use of the word belittle. Well, Adams coined several terms of his own. And much like Jefferson, Adams also received his fair share of criticism across the pond for his new words. He coined the term lengthy as a synonym for long. The word length was well established as a noun, but Adams is the first known person to use it as an adjective in his writings. When the word reached Britain, the critics were appalled. Several years later, a British critic wrote, quote, We shall at all times with pleasure receive from our transatlantic brethren real improvements of our common mother tongue, but we shall hardly be induced to admit such phrases as that at page 93, more lengthy for longer or more diffuse. While the Brits were quick to criticize the use of the word lengthy for long, in America it sounded just fine. After Adams used the word, it was later picked up and used in the writings of Jefferson and Washington and Alexander Hamilton. So it became a very common Americanism. And Jefferson even gave us the first use of the word length as an adverb with the word lengthily. Now, in addition to being given the credit or blame for coining the term lengthy, John Adams also coined another term, the word net in the financial sense of the term. He wrote that a particular man sold sugar to net a few shillings profit. Again, that was the first known use of the word net in that sense. By this point, the United States was its own independent country. A sense of American nationalism had taken over. And with that, there was an increasing sense that American English didn't have to follow the British rules anymore. If the critics in Britain didn't like a particular word, so what? Thomas Jefferson expressed this sentiment when he wrote the following in a letter written near the end of his life. Quote, I have been not a little disappointed and made suspicious of my own judgment on seeing the Edinburgh Reviews, the ablest critics of the age, set their faces against the introduction of new words into the English language. They are particularly apprehensive that the writers of the United States will adulterate it. Certainly, so great and growing a population spread over such an extent of country, with such a variety of climates, of productions, of arts, must enlarge their language to make it answer its purpose of expressing all ideas, the new as well as the old. The new circumstances under which we are placed call for new words, new phrases, and for the transfer of old words to new objects. An American dialect will therefore be formed. End quote. John Adams took this idea one step further. He suggested that Congress should establish an American Academy of English along the lines of a similar academy for French which had been established in France. The idea was that this academy would set national standards for English usage in America. In 1780, he wrote a letter to Congress. 
And in the letter, he expressed an incredible foresight about the future of the English language. He wrote, quote, English is destined to be, in the next and succeeding centuries, more generally the language of the world than Latin was in the last, or French in the present age. The reason of this is obvious, because the increasing population in America and their universal connection and correspondence with all nations will, aided by the influence of England in the world, whether great or small, force their language into general use, in spite of all the obstacles that may be thrown in their way, if any such there should be. End quote. He then added, quote, I would therefore submit to the consideration of Congress the expediency and policy of erecting by their authority a society under the name of the American Academy for Refining, Improving, and Ascertaining the English Language. End quote. Of course, that academy was never established, but it shows that the new American nation was content to have its own form of English, unbound from the mother language back in England. John Adams was succeeded by Thomas Jefferson as the third president of the United States. And during their respective administrations, there was a certain scholar from Connecticut who was busy establishing the framework for that new American dialect. His name was Noah Webster. And in many ways, he standardized the English language spoken in the United States. Webster was a product of the revolution and he applied those principles to language. He agreed with Jefferson and Adams that America should develop its own standards for English. He argued that the standard English of Britain was controlled by academics and aristocrats who tried to impose arbitrary rules on the speech of the common people. Webster argued that the people should control their own language. So in Webster's arguments, you can see parallels between political philosophy and language philosophy. In the 1780s, he composed a speller, a grammar book, and a reader for school children across the country. And then in 1806, he completed his Dictionary of American English. Webster's Dictionary became the standard for American English. His name became a virtual synonym for the word dictionary in the United States. It was partially a response to Samuel Johnson's Dictionary, which had been released a half century earlier. If Johnson hated Americanisms, Webster loved them and embraced them. His dictionary also gave us many of the modern spelling distinctions between British English and American English. Webster felt that words should be spelled more like they sounded, so antiquated spellings which show Latin and French influences should be discarded in favor of more straightforward spellings. It was Webster that ditched the U in words like color and honor. He spelled center and theater with an ER at the end instead of the traditional RE. Defense and offense were spelled with an S instead of a C. So American English now had its own spellings to distinguish it from the mother tongue. Two years after the publication of Webster's Dictionary, America elected a new president, James Madison, the fourth president of the United States. Like Washington, Adams, and Jefferson before him, Madison coined his own words. For example, it was Madison that gave us the word squatter. He used the term for a settler who settled on another person's land and refused to leave. The word soon passed into general American English. We're now firmly in the 1800s, and American English was being pulled in two different directions. 
Noah Webster's Speller and Reader were standard issue across the country. And that was helping to standardize the language, at least in schoolrooms. But at the same time, regional differences were becoming more and more distinct. All languages are constantly evolving. They never stand still. And as people become isolated from each other, regional differences start to increase. And that was starting to happen around the United States and its Western territories. In the early years of settlement in the American colonies, there had been a blending of dialects as people settled down together in a small handful of communities along the East Coast. Now the opposite was happening. People were starting to spread out beyond the Appalachians and then beyond the Mississippi. The country was mostly rural and many people were becoming more and more isolated as they spread out. Given the constant evolution of language, this was the perfect setup for the growth of unique local dialects. By the second half of the 1800s, those unique dialects were on full display in the works of writers like Mark Twain. Twain captured the local dialects spoken along the Mississippi, but other writers were capturing other regional accents as well. It was during this period, in the second half of the 1800s, that America got a new president from the frontier. His name was Abraham Lincoln, and according to contemporary sources, he spoke with a frontier accent. He regularly used howdy for hello. Instead of heard, he said heard. Instead of can, he said kin, as in I can do it. Phrases like out yonder and stay a spell were part of his ordinary speech. It was the accent of the frontier. And it's an accent that can still be heard in many parts of the country today. By all accounts, Lincoln didn't care for flowery language and fancy words. He preferred common, direct speech. And the best example of that preference is his most famous speech, the Gettysburg Address. It's a classic example of the short, direct speech of the frontier. Most Americans study the Gettysburg Address in school. And some of us even had to memorize it and recite it back to our teacher. But what often gets left out is the context in which the speech was delivered. The speech was given at the dedication of the National Cemetery at Gettysburg, just over four months after the Civil War battle that took place there. Lincoln actually followed a well-known speaker named Edward Everett. Everett was known as a great orator, and in many ways he was the exact opposite of Lincoln. His speech that day was really the main event. He gave a long speech using flowery language. It began with the following line. Standing beneath this serene sky, overlooking these broad fields now reposing from the labors of the waning year, the mighty Alleghenies dimly towering before us, the graves of our brethren beneath our feet, and on and on. It went on for two hours. Then it was Lincoln's turn. He rose and delivered his remarks, and his entire speech was just ten sentences, and it only lasted for two minutes. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war. 
testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The reporters who recounted the events ridiculed the short speech, and Lincoln himself considered it a failure at the time. But history has obviously rendered a different judgment on the speech. The speech was a landmark, not only because of the sentiments expressed in it, but also because of the simple and direct way in which Lincoln delivered it. Beyond the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln made other contributions to the English language. He coined the terms relocate and relocation. He used the terms in reference to the relocation of a road. He's also credited with the first known use of the phrase, point well taken. Lincoln's plain speech made it clear that a president didn't need to use fancy words to get his point across. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Frontier accent and everyday speech could match the finest oratory. But by the end of the 1800s, a new dialect was starting to dominate the national political scene. That was the upper-class dialect of the large eastern cities. It was a posh accent, sometimes called the mid-Atlantic or transatlantic accent. In some respects, this particular accent was a return to the roots of American English it tended to mimic certain features of standard British English, and it ended up sounding like a mixture of American and British English. That's why it's sometimes called the transatlantic accent. This was a period of improved relations with Britain, and it was also the Victorian era, which was a cultural high point for Britain. British culture started to infiltrate the U.S. Victorian architecture became popular, and Americans devoured the literature composed by prominent British writers like Charles Dickens, Arthur Conan Doyle, the Bronte sisters, and Robert Louis Stevenson. And the comic operas of Gilbert and Sullivan also found an audience in the U.S. There was a renewed admiration of English culture, and that led to a renewed admiration and respect for the language of England. This also coincided with the rise of non-standard regional dialects in many parts of the U.S., and many of those dialects were stigmatized and ridiculed. Increasingly, the standard English of England was seen as proper English, and some Americans started to become self-conscious about their own accents. It was this strong British and Victorian influence in large cities of the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast that contributed to an upper-class American accent that mimicked standard British English, And it's also very possible that this accent may have combined with some lingering British influences in the English spoken by the upper classes in the U.S. What emerged was sort of a posh American accent. It was the manner of speech taught in preparatory and boarding schools. It became the accent of the powerful elite in those eastern cities. This was the accent that became known as the mid-Atlantic or transatlantic accent. And this particular accent was also adopted by actors on the New York stage. Many of those actors performed in both the U.S. and Britain, so the mid-Atlantic accent was ideal for those performances. The motion picture industry was also originally centered in New York before moving to Hollywood. So many motion picture stars came from the New York stage, and they also performed with that accent. And even after the movie industry relocated to Hollywood, producers continued to use many New York stage actors. The Mid-Atlantic accent eventually became the standard performing accent in the U.S. in the early 1900s. 
If you watch movies from the early 1900s, you'll notice that the actors speak with a very pronounced accent, not quite like people speak today. And that was the Mid-Atlantic accent. These developments coincided with another important development, the rise of radio. Radio brought the Mid-Atlantic accent into households across the country, and it soon became the standard media accent. The advent of motion pictures and radio also meant that voices could now be recorded and captured for posterity. And that meant that we have actual recordings of the president's voices for the first time. And as it turns out, many of the presidents who served during this period were products of those eastern schools, and they spoke with that posh mid-Atlantic accent. One of the first presidents to have his voice captured for posterity was Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt served as president from 1901 to 1909. He was born and raised in Lower Manhattan, and he spoke with a slight mid-Atlantic accent. Just as intriguing was the general tone of his voice. You might expect rugged Teddy Roosevelt to have a deep, booming voice. Well, here it is. Judge for yourself. The great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I am not leading this fight as a matter of aesthetic pleasure. I am leading because somebody must lead or else the fight would not be made at all. I prefer to work with moderates, with rational conservatives, provided only that they do in good faith strive forward towards the light. But when they halt and turn their backs to the light, sit with the scorners on the seats of reaction, then I must part company with them. We, the people, cannot turn back. Our aim must be steady, wise progress. And may our ultra-conservatives remember that the rule of the Bourbons brought on the revolution. And may our would-be revolutionaries remember that no Bourbon was ever such a dangerous enemy of the people and of freedom as the professed friend of both Robespierre. There is no danger of a revolution in this country, but there is grave discontent and unrest, and in order to remove them there is need of all the wisdom and probity and deep-seated faith in and purpose to uplift humanity we have at our command. In order to succeed, we need leaders of inspired idealism, leaders to whom are granted great visions, who dream greatly and strive to make their dreams come true, who can kindle the people with the fire from their own burning souls. The leader for the time being, whoever he may be, is but an instrument to be used until broken and then to be cast aside. And if he is worth his salt, he will care no more when he is broken than a soldier cares when he is sent where his life is forfeit in order that the victory may be won. In the long fight for righteousness, the watchword for all of us is spend and be spent. Teddy Roosevelt was an influential figure. And like many presidents before him, he coined several new terms. It was Roosevelt who gave us terms like lunatic fringe and bully pulpit. He also popularized the word muckraker as a term for investigative journalist, even though the word had been around for a while. He also popularized a lot of new compound words. Words like strenuous life, loose cannon, pussyfooter, weasel word, and hyphenated American. He was also one of the first presidents to use the word dove as the past tense of 
dive. The traditional past tense form was dived, but dove has now become common in American English. Roosevelt is also credited with coining the phrase "speak softly and carry a big stick," but the term had actually been around for a while. It may have a West African origin, but Teddy Roosevelt certainly made the phrase popular. Roosevelt also may have coined the slogan "Good to the Last Drop." The phrase became the slogan for the Maxwell House brand of coffee, and Maxwell House officially claims that the phrase originated with Roosevelt. They say that Maxwell House coffee was served to him while he was visiting the Hermitage in Nashville in 1907. Supposedly, he drank it and said it was good to the last drop. Anyway, Roosevelt gets the credit for the term. Roosevelt also put the name the White House on official stationery. The term for the executive mansion had been around since the early 1800s, but Roosevelt made it official. So Teddy Roosevelt is responsible for many words and phrases in the English language, either by coining them or popularizing them. Roosevelt was succeeded by William Howard Taft, and Taft gave us the use of the term "pork barrel" as a term for government spending on local projects in a politician's district. Before Taft. Pork barrel literally meant a barrel full of pork, but Taft opposed massive spending authorizations, which were to be reallocated and divided among local districts at a later date. He said, quote, "I am opposed to it because it not only smells of the pork barrel, but it will be the pork barrel itself. Let every project stand on its bottom." End quote. And from there, the term pork barrel. Entered the language of American politics. Now Taft was born in Ohio, and he spoke with a more neutral Midwestern accent. Here's a clip of Taft's voice, and note that it lacks some of the theatrical features of the Mid-Atlantic accent which Teddy Roosevelt had. I am willing to admit that war has accomplished much in the progress of the world. I'm willing to admit. That there are certain crises in the forward march of Christian civilization that perhaps could not have been met in any other way than by the sword. I'm willing to admit that war develops certain heroic traits in men and furnishes a test for the evidence of the highest character. Perhaps too, it trains and disciplines people. But the other side of the picture justifies the prayer of every man, of every civilized man, that war should be abolished. And that the suffering, cruelty, corruption, and demoralization that follow in its train should be, as far as we can bring it about, lifted as a burden from the human race. It is our duty to take every legitimate and proper step we can to persuade the nations of the world to settle their controversies in some other way. Twenty years after Taft left office, Teddy Roosevelt's cousin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Was elected president. Like Teddy, FDR was also born and raised in New York, in Hyde Park. He was given an upper-class education, and he also spoke with a Mid-Atlantic accent. As I noted earlier, the Mid-Atlantic accent is also known as the Transatlantic accent because it shares certain features with standard British English. One of those features is the tendency to drop the R after vowels. So in this clip of FDR, notice that tendency. Instead of warn, we get wan. Instead of work, 
we get work. Instead of hearts, we get hearts. And instead of better, we get better. And notice the pronunciation of again as again. All of these were features of the Mid-Atlantic accent. Let me warn you, and let me warn the nation against the smooth evasion that says, "Of course, we believe these things. We believe in social security. We believe in work for the unemployed. We believe in saving homes." Cross our hearts and hope to die. We believe in all these things, but we do not like the way the present administration is doing them. Just turn them over to us. We will do all of them. We will do more of them. We will do them better, and most important of all. The doing of them will not cost anybody anything. In addition to being America's longest-serving president, FDR coined at least one word which passed into the English vocabulary. FDR is the first known person to use the word cheerleader, and he gets the credit for coining that term. Though he didn't coin the term, FDR does get indirect credit. For the term "brain trust" as well, the New York Times first used the term "brain trust" to describe the economists and other prominent persons who supported FDR's 1932 presidential campaign. That term then passed into general usage. The type of Mid-Atlantic accent used by people like FDR was slowly dying out by the time that FDR died in 1945. But he wasn't the last president to have some mid-Atlantic features in his speech. Fifteen years later, John F. Kennedy was elected president. By that point, the mid-Atlantic accent was fading from history. But Kennedy spoke with an upper-class Boston accent that showed many mid-Atlantic features. It wasn't exactly a classic mid-Atlantic accent because it showed a lot of traditional Boston features as well. JFK tended to drop his R's after vowels, and as we now know, that was a feature of both the Boston accent and the Mid-Atlantic accent. But JFK's accent wasn't quite that simple. In some words, the dropped R was replaced with a distinct A sound. There became there. Hemisphere became hemisphere. But in some cases, there was a tendency to insert an R where it didn't really belong. If a word ended in a vowel and was immediately followed by another vowel, the upper-class Boston accent would tend to stick an R in the middle. In the process, a word like idea sometimes became idea, and famously, Cuba sometimes became Cuba. Here's an excerpt from his address to the nation during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Notice that when he gives a slight pause after the word Cuba, he pronounces it Cuba. But when Cuba is immediately followed by a vowel, as when he refers to a missile launched from Cuba against any nation, he sticks an R on the end of the word to bridge the gap between the two vowels. So he says, "From Cuba against any nation." Acting therefore in the defense of our own security, 
and of the entire Western Hemisphere, and under the authority entrusted to me by the Constitution, as endorsed by the re resolution of the Congress, I have directed that the following initial steps be taken immediately. First, to halt this offensive buildup, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port, will, if found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons, be turned back. Second, I have directed the continued and increased close surveillance of Cuba and its military buildup. The foreign ministers of the OAS, in their communique of October 6, rejected secrecy on such matters in this hemisphere. Should these offensive military preparations continue, thus increasing the threat to the hemisphere, further action will be justified. Third, it shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. Following Kennedy's death in 1963, he was immediately succeeded by Lyndon Johnson. Johnson brought a very different sound to the presidency. In sharp contrast to Kennedy's upper-class Boston accent, Johnson spoke with a common Texas drawl. He had a tendency to shorten the last syllable of certain words. He would convert it into a generic uh. Issue became isha. Window became winda. And fellow became fella. Very often, the short flat A became a long A. So national became national, and last became laced. And that traditional tendency of southern accents to stretch out vowels was also a prominent feature of LBJ's speech. A word like wrong became wrong. All of these features are present in the following clip of Johnson advocating for the passage of the Voting Rights Act. There is no constitutional issue here. The command of the Constitution is plain. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. There is no issue of states' rights or national rights. There is only the struggle for human rights. I have not the slightest doubt what will be your answer. So I ask you to join me in working long hours nights and weekends if necessary to pass this bill. And I don't make that request lightly. Far from the window where I sit with the problems of our country, I recognize that from outside this chamber is the outraged conscience of a nation the grave concern of many nations. 
and the harsh judgment of history on our acts. Johnson's term ended in 1969, but he wasn't the last Texan to serve as president. Twenty years later, George H.W. Bush became president. Though he spent a number of years in Texas, he didn't actually move to Texas until after college. Most of his formative years were spent in the Northeast, in Massachusetts and Connecticut. So he didn't really speak with a Texas accent, nor did he speak with an old-fashioned mid-Atlantic accent. But his son, George W. Bush, was a Texan through and through. Though technically born in Connecticut, he spent most of his life in Texas, including much of his childhood. So the younger Bush's speech showed a lot more Texas features. He famously pronounced nuclear as nuclear, a somewhat common mispronunciation. It can be heard in a variety of southern accents, so it might not be surprising to find out that other presidents from the South have also used the same pronunciation from time to time. Both Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton pronounced the word as nuclear on certain occasions. But nuclear isn't limited to the South. Dwight Eisenhower also used it. And Vice President Walter Mondale was known to say nuclear from time to time as well. But it was George W. Bush who was perhaps most famous for that pronunciation. And that was probably because he had a tendency to mispronounce certain words. For subliminal, he once used the word subliminable. And for underestimate, he used misunderestimate. And for analysis, he once used analyzation. But perhaps the most famous Bushism is the word strategery for strategy. However, George Bush doesn't actually get the credit or blame for that particular word. It was actually coined by Saturday Night Live. It was first used in a skit that poked fun at Bush's tendency to misspeak. But it caught on. Others picked up the term. And Bush himself later used the word to poke fun at himself. Today, the word strategery has gained widespread acceptance. And believe it or not, it's actually started to appear in some dictionaries. So once again, we see a new word entering the language thanks to the speech of an American president. We may not always approve of the new word, but don't be quick to belittle it. Remember that the word belittle had a similar origin. Jefferson's little word was also once the subject of much ridicule. For more than 200 years, the speech of the presidents has both reflected and shaped American English. And if history is a guide, we can look forward to more of those presidential words in the future. So the next time you listen to a presidential speech, listen closely, because you may be hearing the future of American English. Royfield here, welcoming you to a brand new edition of 10 American Presidents. And of course, this week's has been President's Speech, a rather special one-off brought to you by the excellent podcaster Kevin Stroud of the incomparable podcast The History of English. You can check out Kevin's work by going onto iTunes uh, and I absolutely thoroughly recommend it if you're interested in the development of the English language. As the 2012 presidential race hots up, our next podcast is the famous Truey versus Dewey fight, so look out for that soon. 
Some of you might know that I produce other podcasts, and one of them is a thing which I used to do some time ago called Mid-Atlantic, which looks at US and UK politics. Now, with Brexit in the UK, and obviously the uh, continuing fascination that is the electoral campaign of Donald Trump, I've decided to dust off Mid-Atlantic. That show should be up and ready on podcast feeds around about the 26th of June. I'm joined on Mid-Atlantic by historian Rob Monaco, journalist Mick Wright, and all-round super-duper brain and podcaster Thomas Daly. So if you like the politics, uh, if you like uh, culture, listen out for Mid-Atlantic. That shall be with you soon. Now, I should have done this sooner, but there are a whole load of people that I need to thank for donating to our Patreon page. Now, Patreon is a way where you can help support me by helping me uh, keep the lights on, by uh, donating a few of your hard-earned pounds and dollars whenever I produce a show. Now, I don't recommend that you do anything more than $5 a show. Um, You can if you want. Uh, But please go over to patreon.com to sign up. And here are the Patreons. Don Collins, Matthew Lennon, Vic Phillipson, Catherine White, Thomas Wolverton and Andrea Peterson. Now, to contribute to the show, you don't have to just go to patreon.com. You can also go on to the 10 American Presidents website, which is the number 10, so 10usp.com, and you can hit that donate button and make us a donation via PayPal. Now, people that have done that are Vinzi Patel, Jim Tanus, Robert Falejijad, Ryan Storm, and Craig Beck. Another way of contributing and helping to the project is by going onto iTunes and writing a review. Please go onto iTunes and write that star, five-star review. I'll be highly grateful if you could do that. Full stop. Remember, you can follow the podcast on social media, specifically Twitter, where we are 10USAP. The website is 10USP.com. On Facebook, you can search for 10 American Presidents group by simply going onto Facebook and typing in 10 American Presidents. That has been just about all from me. I look forward to podcasting to you again very soon. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not... What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly. But sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.